Hi, Mary. How are you doing? I'm really good, thanks. How are you, Dan? Good, thanks. Really good. Interesting one. I was reading in the Sunday Times a couple of weekends ago, they had their best places to live in the UK. And you might be interested to know that your new hometown, Winchester, featured pretty highly in the Southeast category. Oh, yeah. So does that make me ahead of the game then? Well, funny you mentioned that. They actually did also say that it actually won overall in 2016. So in the 2016 edition, Winchester was the best place, according to Sunday Times, to live in the UK. So you can't quite say you're ahead of the game, but you are in a good place. Good try, at least. And what was it? Top five, did you say? In the southeast, yeah. In the south, oh, Top five in the southeast. So many caveats. So why does it get that award? What's so good about Winchester? Other than the sort of the history of it and stuff like that, which is obviously quite good. I don't know Winchester at all, but they seem to say lots of good restaurants, lots of foodie hotspots sort of thing. Okay. Probably unsurprisingly, I haven't really been able to check out many of those just yet, given we moved in November. But yeah, really looking forward to sampling some of those as lockdown eases. I've been already Googling which ones have outdoor seating and which ones I'll have to wait until the indoor restaurants open up again. So good summer ahead. I have to yeah watch my weight if there's so much good food in Winchester. Absolutely. The outdoor seating thing is becoming an absolutely key differentiator in the hospitality retail space, isn't it? We're all seeing it. It really is. Yeah, I suppose just like having a garden was for everyone last year. Huge demand. Definitely. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So a really interesting question that we've all been asking ourselves, I suppose, recently is this idea of how we communicate generally in today's world. And it's something that's cropped up in an investment context in a couple of recent conversations, notably with Claire Walsh a couple of years ago. So for a conversation today about communications, we're delighted to welcome David Miller, Head of Communications at LCP. David, welcome. Thank you very much, Dan. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining us, David. Before we kick off, could you give the listeners a bit of detail about who you are and what your role is at LCP? Yes, certainly. I am David Miller. I'm the Head of Communications at LCP. That sometimes gets confused as being marketing, but I'm not. We're part of the team or we are the team that helps our clients to communicate their pensions and benefits to their audience, to the members or employees. So that's what our team does. So we are consultants who are experts in communications. Cool. And David, just quickly then, why don't you let us in on something we should know about you that we wouldn't find communicated on your LinkedIn profile? There's a rather middle-aged bit, which is during lockdown, I've got into bird watching, which was a thing that I got into as a child. I grew up in Norfolk and we used to go fishing. And as a result of being a very poor fisherman, I ended up understanding more about birds. In fact, there was a bit of a moment when I realized <laughs> I could identify more birds than I could fish and realized that fishing <laughs> wasn't ever going to be the thing that I was doing. I certainly I was a very fish-friendly fisherman. But yeah, it's been interesting being at home and watching bird life. And I've invested in binoculars and bird food and I wouldn't say I was a, what do they call them, a tweeter or a twitterer or something like that. But anyway, twitcher, twitcher is the phrase. Yeah, not, yeah, that's more yeah. a social media thing, isn't it? That's, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Twitter, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> twitcher is the people who travel around. No, as a very much kind of a back garden bird spotter. But I have become fascinated by bird life in the garden. That's been fun. Well, cool. fantastic. We haven't had that one before, so it's new. You can tweet Brilliant. about it. <laughs> I can tweet indeed, about indeed. it. Absolutely, yeah. 
So David, you're head of communications at LCP. You've obviously been in the sort of communications industry for some time. Can you give us a kind of almost like a communications 101? What are the sort of really core principles of communication? What are the sort of high level rules of the game? Yeah, sure. And it's a great place to start actually as well. I think the audience is the key place to start and knowing what it is that you want to say to them and why. So I think that's the bit. And the reason why that's key is I think quite often it's not where people start. So I think it's a key thing to think about is know your audience, really know your audience and know what it is that they want to know and what it is that you need to tell them. And hopefully there's a the Venn diagram has a big crossover in the middle. Otherwise, it's going to be more challenging. But once you understand those principles, then you can get into working out what the right how to frame the messages, what the right media is to carry those messages, how long or short those messages need to be, all those different things that you can then think of. But yeah, I'd say start with the audience, work out them first, and then communicate from there. Cool. And have you got any sort of, I guess, examples of where you've seen communication, particularly good or bad, I suppose, in terms of headlines or the way that information is taken in by a reader? In terms of good, I think the thing that in the pensions industry that we could learn off more, learn from more, is the advertising industry. And I think that that I think it's as a pure form of communication, it seems a little bit grubby in a way. But actually, there's a lot of very intelligent people who communicate very effectively. And when you think about how much, if you've ever taken the exercise of watching a TV advert, which will be on the screen for 20 seconds, some even shorter than that, 10 seconds, then replay the narrative that you've got from that. And if you try and write that script, that story, it will be pages long. So they will use visual cues to give you so much backstory about whether it's a married couple with children and so much information. And they squeeze quite a complex plot sometimes into a really short segment. So I think in terms of brilliant communication, then I think we could learn a lot from the advertising industry. That's probably a go-to. Bad communications, I'm just going to spare my blushes and gloss over all the times that I haven't quite got it right. But (laughs) generally, (laughs) I think every communicating person has a scar of some sort. Some of those scars are quite interesting when it comes to data and getting things wrong. And I think that one of the things that communications people fear is getting it wrong. Actually, it tends to be that you get it wrong before it goes public. And that's a big part of the control process is that before actually all the documents get sent out. But wrong pictures is a big area where communicators will look at. You tend to spend a lot of time looking at pictures and sometimes you can get the picture wrong when it's actually printed on a booklet and it's much more higher resolution. You can see detail that perhaps wasn't in there. So tight t-shirts showing parts of anatomy that weren't visible when you were looking That's one that sticks in the memory. Fortunately, we picked that up before we'd printed 10,000 copies of a book. (laughs) Various other things like that. So yes, I think most communicators would have war stories that they would probably share after a few drinks in a pub rather than than to their clients, I guess. It's super interesting the point you make about advertising. I've listened to some great podcasts with Rory Sutherland, who's obviously a famous advertising exec, and he talks about a lot of the wisdom from the likes of David Ogilvie, who's seen a legend in the advertising space. Those guys knew stuff decades and decades ago that's only just starting to come out in the behavioral research now about how people thought, how people interpreted messages, how people reacted to messages. It's just a shame that the use they put it to was trying to flog us more stuff for so long you might say, but I couldn't agree more. There's so much to learn from some of the smart ads out there in terms of what they pack in and how sticky it is and all the different messages they manage to layer in somehow is really good stuff there. 
in a way, they knew this sort of stuff, but they didn't have the, or we didn't have the framework of exactly. labels to kind of hang off it, to say things like, well, this is behavioral economics in action. It took kind of someone to unpick that and look at things in a different way for us to kind of understand it as a discipline. Probably it looked quite intuitive. And I think that's one of the things that we've got better at as a species is to say, okay, let's work out why these people intuitively are really good at this. There's actually some framework going on there and let's understand it and teach it and coach it to people. And I absolutely agree. Well, let me talk a little bit about how the space has evolved. There's been obviously been a lot of focus on communications recently. For example, communicating risk, communicating medical statistics has been sort of thrust into the spotlight, of course, over the last year, as well as all these new mediums social media, all those sort of things, loads of information and communications coming at us sort of all day long, as well as, like we're saying, much more of a thorough understanding of some of the behavioral aspects of it. So how would you sort of try and make sense of all that over your career, I guess, over decades? What stands out in terms of what's changed and evolved? I think communications generally is starting to be seen as more of a discipline, as more of a specialism. I think that to start with, communications people tended to be people who had fallen out of product space or other spaces and liked writing a bit and so ended up in a comms team, but they'd come from other disciplines. I think now it's seen more as a discipline in and of itself. And I think the point you make about medical and the communication I think if you look at politics in particular, then the rise of people like Dominic Cummings and before him, the other press advisors, they have brought an understanding within the upper echelons of government about the value of communications. I mean, how that is used is an interesting thing. It's very interesting you say that because there's so much negative connotations around whoever you think about. And again, I suppose, why are the connotations negative? Setting aside the politics of it either way, it's because people feel they're being manipulated a bit, isn't it? It's a dark art somehow. Well, people don't so, feel it's quite playing fair. So I tell my comms team generally that actually by learning about communications, it's like the force in Star Wars. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> but you can choose to be Jedi or Sith. It is the same vehicle that you're using and you can deploy it for good or for evil. And it's one of the reasons I like working in the pensions industry is generally there's a lot of integrity in the pensions industry, despite the view that if you talk to people in the public, they've kind of picked up the noise that there's scams and various things like that. And people lose money. But generally, actually, the people that you meet in the pensions industry are at some level trying to help people save for their future and to build wealth in retirement. And those are very noble things. And actually, there's a lot of integrity in the industry that we work in. And you can use that communication to help employers to communicate and kind of help people to raise money for themselves for their later life in the workplace. That's really noble. So yeah, it depends what you're trying to do. Are you trying to manipulate people? Or are you trying to help them. It tends to be the same sort of tactics. I think the communication piece, that whole plot of how the coronavirus was communicated to the public, I think is a really interesting when you look at kind of the public response to the communications. And there's a lot of work that's been done on this. There were some really clever communications early on, like the three messages we respond as human beings to messages of that are short and sharp and uh, three things to say. There was a general kind of, okay, we're being told by government. At the point that Boris gets ill, then actually people start complying with the messages enormously. Then at the point that an advisor gets caught traveling to a castle <laughs> rather famously, <laughs> then actually the compliance with the communication messages, people start interpreting it differently and they start to see it in ways which are a bit more manipulative and things like that. There's lots of testing going on on that one, but I know that there are 
publicly available seminars from people who have worked in that area. And I know that there is a general sense that actually one of the key things they were trying to get across was trust us, absolutely trust us. We are not trying to be manipulative. You can trust the messages that are coming out. As soon as actions don't match the words that you're using, then you start to undermine the message in a bad way. And I think that's been a really interesting test case for communications just generally. I mean, messages like stay at home, pretty clear, I guess. Protect the NHS. You can see what people are doing there. They're appealing to sort of overall sense of duty and stuff. Hands, face, space. Again, simple, fairly clear, I suppose. I guess you can see some themes there. Don't know whether those are translatable onto the investment industry trying to <laughs> boil all comms down to like three words. It comes down to, yeah, if you know exactly what it is that you want to communicate to people. If your broad message is kind of actually you're trying to raise awareness of the range of investment funds, then actually it's quite difficult to tighten that down into a catchphrase. But if you've really thought about what your message is that you're trying to get across to people or a segment of people, then it's going to be possible to do it, certainly. So, I mean, there are clients at the moment who are looking at ESG considerations and are changing on the DC side of things, changing their fund range and trying to raise awareness of that. That's a really good opportunity to hit quite a tight message to a group of people. And there are many examples where you're trying to leave an impression. You're not trying to communicate everything all in one go. And an example, actually, a recent example was a client who changed to a target date fund. So they changed the default to a target date fund. Now, that's actually a really complex thing to communicate. Most people don't really understand the lifestyle strategy to say that actually we're changing the way that lifestyle works by moving to a target date fund situation. But there's kind of similarities in that whole de-risking profile. And did you know what de-risking was? And there's a huge amount to communicate in those. But fundamentally, what you want to get across is the default fund is changing to a target date fund. So we stuck a target on the literature that we use to communicate it. And it's one of those things that you just kind of a simple shortcut, a visual clue. And you really want for the pensions manager to be able to tap someone on the shoulder and say, do you know what's happening on the pension scheme? And a lot of people hopefully would be able to give an articulate answer, but it's still a win in terms of communications. If someone can turn around and say, something about targets that change the default fund, something about targets. You've kind of done that very first baby step into helping them to understand what the nature of the change is. So there are ways that we can learn from other communications in all disciplines, I think. So let's maybe talk a bit about challenges and maybe some tips from you in terms of specifically investment communications, but clearly learning from other disciplines. The thing that I fairly often rant about on these podcasts is the prevalence of jargon in the investment industry, which I know the pensions industry is quite bad for, but I think investment is probably up there as the worst. So yeah, absolutely. And neologisms, just like creating (laughs) new words and kind of assuming that everyone knows about them. Yes, absolutely. Even your example just now. So we've got lifestyle, not everyone knows what that is. We've got target date fund, not everyone knows what that is. So where there is lots and lots of jargon, what are your sort of tips for getting past that and making sure the message is clear? What tends to be the way that we deal with jargon, a test case in not doing it well, is what we tend to do is to take the jargon phrase and think that's not a very good jargon phrase. So let's take target date funds and then we turn it into an acronym, TDF, and then we use TDF in the literature and somehow by kind of making it quite small and turning it into something that's not kind of a long phrase, we somehow think that we're communicating more clearly because we're just using TDF instead of target date fund. But actually, I think that just adds a layer of complexity and confusion. And where people are reading about things that TDF based on a 
NRD, for example. I mean, it's just, it's never going to work. So I think if you're looking at a phrase, most of these are sort of compound noun problems is where jargon comes in. And nouns really are an interesting thing. And words generally, they have a meaning to them, which you have to understand. And nouns, we're just labeling things, aren't we? But whereas someone understands the concept of tree, when you use the term tree, where we've created a noun to refer to a thing, actually, you're not going to be able to use it to communicate. So you're far better off. If we invented the concept of tree and then started talking about trees, you'd be far better off saying actually big wooden leafy thing that you see kind of growing out of the ground would be much more understandable for people. And so I think rather perversely, using more words rather than fewer is going to bring you clearer communication. And so don't be afraid to make your communication slightly longer if what you're doing is clarifying something which is different and jargony. So short communication generally is a strong rule, but you've got to balance that. If you've made your communication short by filling it with acronyms, that's just not going to work. And I guess pictures you mentioned using the sort of target image, maybe the association there is helpful as well. Yeah, an interesting presentation I went to once, which was from TPR, actually, and they were talking about exactly this thing about how communication works. And the example they used was the army. The army used to give their squaddies when they took them on board, probably lots of things, but the story works better if I say that the army gives people a gun and a manual. It used to give them a 60-page manual about how to look after the gun and a gun. And of course, what did everyone do was just kind of put the manual in their locker and then kind of sit there and play with the gun and work out how it worked. But now what they do, and they had an example of it, is that it's they've taken a photos of the gun and they've turned the manual into like an almost an Ikea catalogue. This is how you take your gun apart. This is how you clean it. And this is how you put it back together just using pictures. Now, that is just a brilliant piece of communication because it's much more it's much more a visual species words are brilliantly useful but we've kind of been programmed to understand visual cues and if you can do that i've always set a challenge and maybe your listeners will do it but if we could explain pensions and investments just using pictures then that would be brilliant and i think it must be possible but without creating a full video how do you do it in a few pictures which would explain the concept of pensions would be a good way of communicating i think no words at all there's a challenge about data and pie charts they are pictures but i think infographics have been a big thing that's grown up and the challenge there i've seen a lot of bad infographics but infographics take data and tell a story with it and that i think is brilliant really really difficult to do but if you can do it then tell a story with your data that's just a phenomenal way of communicating that's definitely something that i want to try and work on more in terms of some of the pieces that we're putting out and some of the thought pieces we're writing. Because I agree, if you can supply that infographic that really unlocks the understanding in people's minds, then it'll be very memorable and it's a very good thing to try and do. But you're right, I've seen a lot of bad ones and I've seen a lot of pie charts and there's all sorts of criticisms of pie charts, aren't there, as kind of not a very effective way of communicating anything beyond the very simple. So it's difficult. Do you think part of the issue here, and Claire Walsh alluded to this, is that we just always let the perfect get in the way of the good, especially in finance and in investing and in pensions. And sometimes it comes from a good place. It's like, we don't want to simplify it like that because that wouldn't give the whole picture. So we feel compelled to give the full truth of everything that's going on. And in doing that, you bury the key bit so deep that people might actually not ever get to it. I absolutely agree. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we communicate is based around a change, some sort of project or launch of a new fund, for example, or changes to the pension scheme, which in itself is an issue. You shouldn't need an excuse to provide communication to people. But the truth is, a lot of it comes from projects that you're doing. And I think the engagement piece is 
the people working on that project have taken it from a small idea and then have grown it. And then by the time they're ready to communicate to people, they've got a massive information to communicate. And I kind of think, actually, just roll back. What was your own personal journey in this? Where did you start? Just start with those big concepts of actually we're looking at the fund range. We're not certain about them or something quite high level and explain it in drip feed that information across. I, absolutely. I think once you know lots of things, then you have a pressure to communicate all of those things. And I think you can get into far too much detail and then you run into, but actually we don't know the answer to that yet. So we won't communicate. And ultimately we end up communicating a lot in a small number of communications rather than lots of communications which communicate a little bit on each different stage and that latter is much better for engagement certainly. I couldn't agree more you made this point really well last year I think when I spoke to you a few times David you're saying that when markets were crashing last March April obviously it was a really stressful and worrying time for all sorts of reasons but for people's pension obviously it's understandable that lots of providers wanted to communicate to what was going on and that posed a challenge because you couldn't give people blanket reassurance because of course markets were down absolutely then if you do communicate you're then under pressure it's like well what are you doing now are you communicating every month what if there's no news the next month do you say nothing or do you do a communication to say that nothing has changed or do you say don't worry there's been no further bad news are you setting yourself up and it's such a bind actually i think and most of the time when we receive a communication from a financial firm to be honest i think what they're trying to sell me sort of thing they must be trying to sell me something if they're sending me an email and so i guess most financial firms are just not in that habit of having a regular communication with their underlying customers that allows them to get that dialogue going right it's a tough position to be in i think that's absolutely right that there are examples of fund houses who do provide really good ongoing communications And the good thing about that, once you've built up a foundation of communication that you are going to provide market updates and messaging, pretty much the same messaging works every time there is a downturn. And you start to get the kind of, we've been here before, let's not panic again. So I think you kind of learn what you're pushing out. And there is an organization who hits pound cost averaging quite heavily when markets start to fall. And that's quite a difficult concept. But if you've put the legwork into communicating that kind of message when markets are ticking up, then actually people are more receptive to it when they start to fall. I definitely have known people, genuine people who have said, I'm buying cheap units. And how much are they actually really terrified that the markets are collapsing and they're watching their pension saving disappear? And how, but how much they actually realize it? We're quite good at holding on to good news. Hope kind of keeps us going, doesn't it? And it's quite handy to have something which kind of gives you that positive spin. But you can build up that knowledge and provide kind of people with the ability to make logical decisions based upon what you've told them regularly. I think regular or frequent communications on investments is vital. You definitely don't want to only communicate when there's bad news. That's one of the problems I think that the brand of pensions has is that it only makes the news, the mainstream. There's not really kind of a big push of retail communications out there making noise in the marketplace in the way that Coca-Cola, you kind of is a McDonald's is a ubiquitous part of life. There's no kind of investment kind of noise. The only time it gets into the mainstream is when the BBC or ITV says, actually, markets have fallen. And if you think this doesn't affect you, then actually your pension is invested in it. It tends to be the way (laughs) they try and make their story relevant to their audience. And a little bit of me dies each time they do it. And yet, in more recent months, I've not heard a single BBC news presenter say, and markets are really buoyant this week. That's right. By the way, that's great for your pension. That's really interesting. I really like that tip in terms of, well, I guess the thing that really stuck with me there was taking your client or your readers on the journey with you, which is the ups as well as the downs and that frequent communication. 
Exactly. And establishing that frequent communication, I think I don't see very many firms that do that well. I kind of, I did wonder if some of the sort of robo advice firms would try and establish that. And from what I've seen, I haven't seen any fantastic examples of doing that. I've seen one or two sort of forward thinking IFA type networks in the US in particular, who have some really good content bloggers and producers, Ritholtz Wealth Management is one example. They've got people who are constantly writing every week, putting out good content. But when you actually read it, they're really replaying lots of basic messages around stay calm, stay invested, dollar cost average in, passive is probably best, be global, don't make big decisions. And there's always a slightly different take on it, but really it boils down to that same message. And I just think that is real genius because all too often the messages from fund houses and stuff are, buy this fund, buy this fund for the recovery, buy these stocks for the recovery, this fund to protect you. And they're just trying to force you to change something or do something. And it's quite rare that you get good comms that's encouraging people to keep doing what they're doing, I guess, because it doesn't get the headlines, does it? I think that's it. What is the commercial imperative of doing it? And I think that's the bit is that it requires no communication is completely free, even if it's just time from someone just. It's actually quite a valuable commodity. But I think it does require an investment. And I think that's right back to the beginning. You said know your audience. If you know that your audience don't understand investments and that matters to you, then in that Venn diagram in the middle, that gives you an objective to aim at. And a lot of objectives quite short term actually if you said over the course of five years we would like our audience to understand investments more and we're prepared to invest in a program to make that happen then that's an achievable goal and it would involve regular communications and they say dan it's hitting the same few messages but in a slightly different way each time and then actually at key moments kind of saying Actually, here's an example of what we've been talking about and making it real for people with their real lives. One of the advantages of that, of course, if you're taking them on the journey is back to your target date fund example. You don't have to start by explaining about de-risking, about equities, about bonds, about what a target date fund is, what it's trying to do before you even get started on the change you're talking about, which by which time you probably lost people. You can leverage off what you've already been telling them, hopefully. And you talk about the robo-advice piece and the communication there. I think when it comes to advisors generally, you can, well, Claire, on the previous podcast, you could always sense the frustration of the lack of knowledge. But I think if you could start a conversation with people from a place of more knowledge, then that really helps you. And I think that when we're talking about pension scheme trustees, if you are planning any activity later on down the line, whatever it happens to be, then having establishing a base level of understanding of the way that a pension scheme works, who the trustees are, what their role are, those kind of big picture messages, that is really useful because you don't have to revisit those points when you've got something much more complex to say. You can signpost to people where they could find that and remind themselves. But yeah, establishing base level of understanding is really good. I guess that also means that you've built up that level of trust so that when you're changing something, the immediate reaction isn't they're taking money away from me, which I know sometimes is the worry when communicating change with pension scheme members or investors. Absolutely. Yeah, we're really good at kind of hearing a message and thinking, right, I've heard this message four times. And so now I know what to expect. So if you only communicate at times when things are bad, it needs to be positive messages in amongst the tough ones as well. Ouch, yeah. Why don't we talk a little bit about different mediums? Because we're obviously massive fans of podcasts here. <laughs> of course, podcasts are the answer to everything. But Claire quite rightly talked about TikTok, spent a bit of time on that. Of course, something like Twitter, it's pretty old hat now, you might say, but then you've got web communications, YouTube videos. And there was a great little piece out research from the FCA, wasn't there, last week, we'll link to it in the show notes, that was looking at the proportion of self-directed investors getting their advice from things like TikTok and YouTube. And the percentages were just staggering. You got sort of roughly a fifth of newer self-directed investors getting their advice from YouTube, which is really surprising. So, I mean, 
how would you assess all that, David? Challenge or opportunity, I guess, with all those different mediums? Probably like everything, both. But it is interesting. I think pension surveys, when we write out and say to people, one of the standard questions is, well, where do you get your information from on pensions? And actually, up until recently, social media didn't really even appear in those kind of as options. It was just a general other, and we didn't really look at it. I think the pensions industry is quite behind when it comes to all forms of social media. Not even every pension scheme has a website, and certainly some of them may have a website, but it's probably not accessible very well from a mobile phone. So we're quite behind on how people communicate. And I think if I take three or four steps back, the big revolution in communications has been moving from broadcast from a single form of the BBC and broadcasting messages to an audience who then in small pockets might discuss that content with each other. The big change that's happened through digital is allowing peer-to-peer communication. And when it first kind of started and we started to see Facebook and things like that, it was still felt like Facebook communicating to us. And it took a while, I think, for us to understand that actually the content is being generated by our peers, by us, and the just platforms that enable you to talk to each other. But actually, we've each become broadcasters. And that's been phenomenal and terrifying in equal measure, because just because you can broadcast doesn't mean that you know what you're talking about. And yet, people have become influencers in areas where they can't. And I think that's the big thing. The pensions industry, I think, because we're dealing with such personal information, we've got very good at providing information to me, for example, and making sure that that is very private, that I am given my personal information. And the key goal is not to let anyone else see that. Whereas actually at the same time, and the rest of the world was kind of saying, how do we share things? How do we share everything across multiple platforms? And then all these different platforms have grown up, which have allowed sharing of different, whether it's video or whether it's written text or whatever it happens to be and it is just enabling people to share different media through a digital platform and there is opportunity there for us definitely tiktok is one thing but even you know podcasts have been around for 18 years or something haven't they they're not exactly new taken off more recently but i don't see that many pension funds running podcasts and you might say oh it was rubbish it's no use but i could see a strategy that included that for like a weekly sort of heartbeat communication educational stuff and then you save the letters for the personal bigger stuff i don't think you'd want a letter from your pension provider every week saying hi i just thought you might like some educational stuff on (laughs) equities or something whereas hearing on a podcast can be quite interesting and it's also a question of push pull isn't it absolutely and Understanding the different media and how you can use them, I think, is key. And certainly podcasts, really interesting because they tend to be, you don't have to stick to a headline. You can have quite a short program, half an hour, which deals with some pretty thorny issues in that period of time. And you can actually get a lot of information across in a really engaging way. Reading is quite hard. Listening to people talking is a much easier way of engaging. And yet you can tackle some pretty thorny issues. So it's a great tool. Once someone is engaged, you can use a podcast to top up that knowledge, cover different topics and issues. And it's a great way of doing it, plus relatively cheap to do as well. So you don't need to, I mean, it takes time to do it and expertise to do it well, but you don't need to be recording huge amounts of video. I'm pretty sure any old idiot can run a podcast. I mean, it really isn't that hard, is it? Easy peasy. I think you're underselling yourselves, actually. There are also some very bad podcasts out there as well. But the conclusions of all that, I mean, we might think we're in the investing business, but really we're all in the media business. I mean, that's what we're all realizing, I think. And we're waking up to think that the investment business should really be thought of as a media business with some investment funds attached. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about it in those ways, but yeah, absolutely. David, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your pyramid because that really was quite 
a light bulb moment for me when you talk through that. I'd love you to lay out to the listeners, what is your pyramid of communications? Okay, so a visual communication, which I have to describe <laughs> medium of words in a podcast. Yeah, true. Effectively, it sets out the challenge of communication and what you're trying to achieve in a pyramid. So the fat base of the pyramid is probably where we spend most of our time, which is saying, is the communication correct? And I think that is the existence of upper layer of the pyramid is probably one of the bits that is interesting in that we probably spend a lot of time looking at the lower levels of the pyramid and don't even really know that there are higher things to achieve in terms of a communication. So there's five levels. The bottom one is, is the communication correct as a target? And as I say, we spend a lot of time making sure that the communication is correct, and rightly so. The second level up is, do we think it's understandable, is the second layer. And I think kind of 90% of effort in communication goes on those two layers. But the third layer up is, has it been read? And I think if you approach the communication from the point of view of not how do we get this right, but will someone read it? I think you'd see a lot more kind of turn to page three for your free balloon or something along those lines. You'd think about it in a different way. If the task was to get someone to open the envelope, you'd approach that in a very different way. Normally, the envelope is the last thing that people think about in the production process for the communication. It's how do we write this long letter, make sure it's absolutely correct, stick it in an envelope, off it goes. But actually, what's on the envelope? How are you getting someone to encourage them to open it and engage with the content is crucial. So once you've gone to red, then has it been understood? So the corollary of kind of, is it understandable? That's you judging it. Actually, what did someone take from it? And humans are remarkably good at kind of conversations are really what goes on between other people's ears, really. So you say something, I find this at home all the time. I say something very, very clear to my daughter, who's 18 years old, and I've been very, very clear about what it is that we need to do. And then she does something completely different. So at some, <laughs> at some point, I mean, where is the issue with that? It's my issue, isn't it? I'm not being clear enough, possibly. But there's a breakdown. Is it understood? even though I felt it was understandable. And then at the top level of the pyramid, can this information be used to make a logical decision? So what is it that once you've communicated, it's not just that we've got something to tell you. And it may be, but actually, if you want to create something, could someone who hasn't engaged with that topic before use the information that you've provided to do something? And is it clear what you want them to do or what they could do as a result? So that pyramid kind of builds up to think about these different things in terms of creating your communication. What a fantastic structure to leave us with. We're just running out of time now. So I think probably this is the point where we'll wrap up, but that was a great end to the session. So David, just as we do wrap up, what one thing do you want listeners to take away from this discussion? I would say don't be afraid to communicate more rather than less is probably one. There was a few bits in there, but I think that's probably my big thing is if you don't communicate, then someone else will. It's not that there's a void. Then if you're not giving a message, then someone else is. And so communicate more rather than less, I would say, is probably the big rule. Super interesting. And David, what would you say is the most underappreciated aspect of communications? The fact that just because everyone can write doesn't mean that it's not a professional space. And I think that's one of the challenges is that because lots of people in our industry write and write very well, but actually there's more to it. And I think you could, sounds like a plug, it's not necessarily a plug, but (laughs) give some thought to those things and communications experts will look at your communication in a different way to you do. So I think that is probably one of the things that's not quite understood. You wouldn't set up your own investment fund. And so turn to an expert if you want to communicate really, really well. Apart from the LCP communications team, as you just plugged, do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts, that sort of thing? TV shows and podcasts, they're normally very business related. Am I allowed one that's just fun? Is yeah, sure. absolutely. 
so one of the things that I've done with my kids is to ask them to kind of suggest podcasts. And one of them, which has gone down really well in our family, I don't think it's really a podcast, but we use it as a podcast, is a BBC radio series called Cabin Pressure, which is just genius. And it's just good family. If we want to listen to something while we're all eating, then we listen to Cabin Pressure, which is just a brilliant story of a small airline. But the brilliant thing is because it's an airline, the two pilots <laughs> have a lot of time to kill. And so a lot of the episodes are then coming up with silly games like people who aren't evil but have evil sounding names and then they're listing those <laughs> names which is great so Callista Flockhart sorry if you're listening Callista but you have an evil sounding name but you're not evil and Patek Philippe and books that sound more interesting with a final letter knocked off so things like of mice and me or three men in a boa I mean how good is that so you can use that as kind of it sparks some ridiculous dinner table conversations which is good fantastic so some light relief this is the week just after the bank holiday weekend. So clearly still absolutely. feeling a bit silly, but that's brilliant. Thank you. And we'll link to that. David, it's been an absolutely great conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Brilliant. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, David. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. But do join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.